Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to a musical journey like no other, giving music fans an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins album, Autumn. This is 33, and this is the world premiere of your new favorite music podcast. On every episode of 33, we debut a new song from the album, and with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan, we're going to break down each song, going deep into the story, the lyrics, the melody, the connections to past albums, and the connections to the world we all share. Every episode features a world premiere of a new song. Hear it here first on 33. We're also going to be giving you exclusive insights to previous hits, B-sides, fan-favorite tracks, and anything you can expect from the Billy Corgan catalog. You can expect to hear not only deep and entertaining conversation, but also interviews with musicians, artists, and people who have influenced the new album, Autumn, and much, much more. I'm Joe Galley, one of your hosts for 33. On this premiere episode, we're going to be listening to the title track, Autumn, as well as the hit song, 1979. We're also going to be welcoming world-class pianist Mike Garson to this program. He'll be coming on in just a little bit. Also joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. Thank you, Joe. I'm happy to be a part of this. I mean, this is a brand new experience for all of us, podcasting. We're going to be going through 33 songs, brand new. 33 classic songs. All the information, one thing in common, William Patrick Corgan. We want you to follow along. Go to WPC33.com. We're going to have Spotify playlists on there, lyrics of the songs. We had all sorts of discussion about this and the influences that helped made these things what they are today. And the man himself, Billy Corrigan. Billy, thanks for joining us. And more importantly, thank you for sharing everything you're about thank to you, do. Thank you, gentlemen. You know, it's interesting. I've resisted the idea of doing a podcast, but what inspired me in this particular instance was the opportunity to really share not only the inspiration behind the music, but the story of the Autumn album, how it became to be, and breaking down each individual song to tell the narrative form. Because on the other concept albums I did in the past, uh, Melancholy from 1995 and Machina's album from 2000, 
I didn't really explain the story and it caused a ton of confusion. It still causes a ton of confusion. So on this one, the third concept album by the Smashing Pumpkins, the third in the trilogy, we're actually going to explain the story as we go. So we have the benefit of knowing the story before you actually hear the song. So that I think will be a unique experience both for me and for everybody here. I need to know that when you were first doing all of the concept albums, did you know where the story was going or is this just revisionist history and you're like, I've had this plan the entire time? You know, Kyle, that's a great question. I think it has been a plan in my mind all the time. Once I stumbled upon the idea of us doing concept albums circa 1994, I've kind of never looked back. And my inspiration for doing it and why I wanted to do it and what it said about us as a band and as a musical unit has borne out over time. It has been uncomfortable at times. And I'm not saying it's going to be a lumpy ride for the new album, Autumn. But I expect that not everybody's going to understand why a band in its 50s, and uh, we aren't 40 anymore, (laughs) Uh, would do something that's 33 songs. I've heard a lot in the lead up to this, and this is all before this, obviously, a lot of people pulling me aside saying, do you really have to do this? Does it need to be so much music? Why you want to do this sort of big thing? Is it really necessary? And all I can do is point back and say that, look, the album that changed our lives forever wasn't Siamese Dream in 1983. It was Melancholy in 1985. That's when the band truly entered onto the world stage and was taken seriously. And the fact that we're still playing at a very high level, outplaying arenas and Headlining festivals around the world has everything to do with our willingness to take risks. So it's inherent in us as people and as musicians that risk is what makes the band the band, not the other way around. Billy, does that fuel you? Like when people, you know, they set some sort of doubt or they don't believe something's going to work out. Does that just fuel you even more? When I was young, it fueled me into a very negative energy. In essence, I'm going to prove you wrong. And as I even said, sort of around the time that Melancholy came out, that feeling doesn't last very long. It's really not a sustaining feeling. I think for me, it's about the musical journey, going places I wouldn't normally go and doing things that make me uncomfortable. And I know that might sound strange, but sometimes when you're making music, the uncomfortable feeling is the feeling that you get when you're onto new ground. If you're too comfortable, you're too familiar, probably repeating yourself on some level. And one thing I can say in the positive, and although not everyone agrees about the Smashing Pumpkins, is we haven't repeated ourselves a lot through the years. And that makes us very, very unique. Um, It's antithetical to the way the music business operates. But uh, we're still here, so I can only assume it's worked out. So this is essentially what you're saying, a new reinvention, possibly. It's an evolution of everything that's come before it, and hopefully the fans love it. I have a slightly different perspective, Kyle. I think this is the band regaining its high ground morally and intuitively. In essence, when we're a music band first and politicians and shills and salesmen second, the band has tended to do better on the world stage. I don't know why that is, because for other people, it seems to work in the reverse. But for us, the more progressive we are, the more risk-taking we are. That's not even English. It seems to do something in the chemistry and the alchemy around us. I'm not saying it always translates into a direct musical experience. Too often in my life, I've had the experience of making a record and people come back to me 10 years later and go, okay, now I get it. It's very possible that the Autumn album will be one of those albums that people down the road will go, it's really, really important. It may not occur in this moment. Look, 33 songs over two hours and 20 minutes of music is a lot for anyone to consume, including yours truly. But the fact that we're willing to take this chance and make this statement, I I think says a lot about who we are and who we've always been. So for me, it's about reclaiming that. And when I say moral, I don't mean sort of uh, in the Christian sense of the moral. It's our moral high ground. It's the the reason we came together and we were willing to sort of fight the good fight in in a world that actually surprisingly, particularly in alternative music, asked us to be conformist which was the most shocking thing of all because Generation X was sold as the dangerous generation. They were going to change the world. It actually ended up being very conformist within the confines of that particular castle. So the fact that we're still out there waving a flag that almost nobody else is waving, I think is kind of, it kind of points out that we've always been this way and will always be this way. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to start talking about is we break down these songs and after the break, we're going to go straight into the title track, Autumn, which is an instrumental song. But let's talk a little bit about not only that track, but maybe the tone that it's going to set for this entire album going forward. What can people expect? Sure, we're going back for a second. In 1995, the opening track in Melancholy was the Melancholy theme. And I did that because I wanted to sort of create a mood, which was very sentimental. I wrote that um, on my piano in my living room. And just in the next room from where I'm doing this podcast is that same piano. I still have that piano. And anytime I play it, I get kind of a sentimental vibe that takes me back to a much simpler time in my life. When we did Machina in 2000, I felt, okay, I got to have a theme. And I wrote this very cold alien theme, which is called uh, Ledoux Machina, which for years we used as an introductory piece of stepping on stage. So it, it made sense to me, right. 
we're going to do this movie, chapter three, you know, the, the sequel of the sequel, right? And so Autumn is the music that sets the scene for the whole movie. It's both ominous and hopeful. It's uh, churlish and it's got a bit of a wink to it, but that's the Smashing Pumpkins. So I think when you listen to the song, you'll hear the, uh, that's called the emotional sentiment. But what's the story? The story is, if you were making a movie and hopefully you'll make the movie in your mind as I explain it, you'll come up on a spaceship floating in space. You don't know what that spaceship is. We'll talk about that in the next episode, but you, that you see a ship floating in space. And from that ship floating in space, it's a very small craft, beautifully designed. And in real life, we've actually designed a spaceship with a true Hollywood designer. So when you see that, you'll understand why it's so cool. Down Earth, we go into a world that's beset by riots and dissent and unhappiness and a lot of strife. Now we float back into space. We zoom past the spacecraft that we don't know what it's doing. And now we float under the dark side of the moon. And what do we see? We see things that we didn't know were there. Pyramids, crystal uh, towers, the rumor that on the dark side of the moon, which is why the uh, moon mission originally went up there to find what was really on the dark side of the moon, to quote the uh, Pink Floyd album, that there is a bunch of stuff there. So you see at the opening of the movie, you see that the world that you've been told is real, isn't as real as you've been told it is. And you float out into space, you go past Mars, you see the face on Mars, you see the pyramids on Mars, which many people have documented. And you float towards the sun. As you get closer to the sun, you realize the sun isn't what you always were told it was. And I'll leave that to your own imagination for the moment. And that is the opening of the movie. Am I interpreting this right? I'm getting the vibe like maybe there's a part of you that kind of says, maybe we don't know all the answers and maybe what you've been told is a lie. And I'm going to just kind of put that into the music and make people feel what I'm thinking. I think that um, it's important to break down that what you've been told about the world, and I'm talking about every level, language, self-perception, what success is, what happiness is. Who controls the narrative of the world, whether it's a religion, a government, a social media company, that it's worth considering that what you've been told may not only not be real, but there might be reasons you're being told something not real to convince you of something to keep you on a particular side of the street. It has been shown over time that people in power tend to abuse power, and they oftentimes convince themselves, and I have had these conversations with powerful people in the world, they convince themselves that they're... Their motive for controlling the narrative of the world, in, in essence, occluding normal people like us from the truth in quotations, is they actually think they're doing us a favor. That if we knew how chaotic the world really was, if we really knew how dangerous the world really was, none of us could really handle it. That's one of the things that people talk about in regards to, well, why doesn't the government just admit that there are UFOs? And lately, they've been, for some reason, releasing footage saying, oh, this is from a government aircraft. So the thought on the conspiratorial side is that... Um, if we all knew that there were UFOs and that maybe religion wasn't as it was espoused to be in the way that it was espoused in the Bible or, or some other religious text, that everyone would just lose their mind and the world would fall apart at the seams. I'm not here to talk about that per se, but what I'm saying is I believe that the point of the musical starts from this very perspective of the world that you believe you see isn't the world as it is. And that is intrinsic to what the musical's after in its narrative form over 33 songs. I'm totally in for the conversation about UFOs, by the way. I don't know if we want to do a secondary podcast. I'll just throw that out there. Well, here, we can, we we can, can end on this. this all day. I have seen a UFO. Have you seen a UFO? Kyle? I have. Guys, I feel left out now. How come I'm the only one that hasn't seen a UFO? Am I not open to the things that are around they're me? Waiting, Am I blind to the world? for when it's really going to matter. Ponder that for a second. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm ready to blast off into the world premiere of Autumn We'll be hearing that right after the break and also our interview with the incredible Mike Garson. That's all coming up right after this. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome back, friends. William Patrick Corrigan here on the 33 Podcast. Very excited. The world premiere of not only a new song, the world premiere of the title track of a new 33-song album from the Smashing Pumpkins, our third concept album in the trilogy. So please enjoy. Sit back. Do what you do. Grab that CBD gummy and enjoy Autumn. Thank you. 
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to the title track of the newest album by the Smashing Pumpkins, Autumn. Billy, I have to say, when you sent us the file and I got to listen to this, it had the waveform that you got to see, you know, with songs. And you just saw that way the song built visually. And to listen to the song and have it build to that same instrumental crescendo that's to the end. Like, I really felt like the, the energy that you were trying to build and the flavor that you're really trying to set for this new album. Well, you know, it's in the tradition of the other two instrumentals that we did on the other two concept albums, Melancholy's Theme, which of course opened the Melancholy album, and Ledoux Machina, which was kind of a sneaky theme for the Machina album. It has to create the image in your mind of the movie that I'm trying to make. And so opening this album, which is a four-year endeavor with this song, is very important to set the tone, which is perfect because I want to give a little teaser before we bring on our special guest. And what the teaser is, is once you've sort of seen what the opening scene is, and I've described that already. The movie now switches very simply to two spaceships floating in space on the left and the right at a distance where the people cannot see one another. In the left is our lead character, Shiny, and the right is June. Shiny doesn't know June is there. June's in love with Shiny. And so as she begins every morning, she begins with the prayer to Shiny. And that's what our second song is about. And so if you listen to episode two, it will take you into the deep dive on that. Now, all of this perfectly dovetails into our special guest because there is a connection here to David Bowie, and he's known as David Bowie's Piano Man. That's Michael Garson, my dear friend of over 20-something years now, which is crazy, Mike. We go that far back. So welcome to my new podcast. Very excited to have you. I wanted you to be the first guest because you really do kind of sum up my musical journey to get to this point. So welcome. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, and I I love that track that opens the... uh... 33 songs. Yeah, so give me give me your give me your impressions on it because you know you're somebody who's dealt with you know incredible kind of complicated polyphony throughout your incredible musical journey. So tell me how it hits you from a kind of a musical kind of choral point of view. Well, I I love that you sent me an instrumental because it is where I live and most of the music I've done has always been instrumental. And the first thought I had is somebody needs to write a complete three-hour movie around your music rather than the way we did it with Stigmata and other things that we all do as composers where, you know, you fall in line and then you support the music. That's like operatic, and that's how they did it back in the days of opera. It wasn't the other way around. So it hit me, but it wasn't just like a movie theme. It was captivating sonically, harmonically, and, and how it built. I was faced with a similar thing that you were faced with with me 20 years ago when I gave you a couple of my classical improvised albums. And what do you say to a person when they say, give it, you're an honest person, and I have to tell them if it sucks. But I didn't know what to expect, and I was just more than pleasantly surprised because it was very different, and I could see why you want my feedback on it because it's where I live and uh, it made me think in a prior lifetime you might have been a pharaoh or a king <laughs> works for me that every time I love the vibe of that to be honest with you I mean you're telling a story you're painting a picture for me is anybody familiar with Fabio Frizi uh, the Italian horror movie Composer. It gave me vibes of something that I loved from that, which also made me think the stigmata connection with you two working on the soundtrack for that back in 99. So this is all coming full circle and I'm loving it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's hard in the modern context to do instrumental music because you assume that nobody's going to pay attention because everything is screaming at you all the time in modern music, particularly with vocals. The vocals have never been louder in in the mixes of modern music. So to ask people to give you their attention, you really got to try to make a statement. And we tried to open with that statement saying, look, this is a very different movie. Yes, it's the third chapter in the story of uh, Zero turned glass, now turned shiny. And yet um, we have to say this is different, that we are trying to say something different, that we actually have something new to say, which I think is the greatest challenge for a band entering its, into its uh, fourth decade. Now, Mike, uh, for those who don't know, of course, I introduce you to Bowie's Piano Man. Well, your rock and roll story picks up. Of course, you had a musical journey that was mostly in jazz before you met David Bowie, circa 1972. Is that correct? That's correct. And prior to that... But you were playing some jazz. I'm not crazy, uh, right? Um, No, I was playing a lot of jazz. Uh, Before I met David, I went to see my favorite drummer, who was John Coltrane's drummer, Elvin Jones. 
in a in a club in the village and 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 the piano player <laughs> fell off the stand drunk <laughs> they carried him out into the street in Greenwich Village and Elvin said does someone play piano in the house and I happen to know the sax player and the sax player points to me and said Mike could come up and, and do it and Elvin said I was in a suit I think I came from playing a bar mitzvah or a wedding and I was all dressed up and Elvin looks at me and he says Come on up, Arthur Rubenstein, who was a great concert pianist. And he got, it was like intuitively he knew that I was a little in left field. So I was playing jazz with the best then. Right before that, I was with Martha and the Vandellas. And before that, Mel Torme, you know. <laughs> you know, so, and then Mel Lewis, Thad Jones, big band, and playing with Mike Brecker and Dave Liebman on the whole jazz scene and Steve Grossman. So, you know, that was my life. And... I never heard of David Bowie when he called, and of course he loved that. And uh, I see myself as the whipped cream on the cake to his music. They was they were a great band, the Spiders, and I just did what I do, thinking he might may or may not like it, but he happened to like it. And he was never micromanaging. He was uh, gave me a vision, and I played. And that's and and I was only hired for eight weeks, and I ended up longest standing member like 600 shows 25 albums and i don't know how that happened well i do because you're an incredible musician and you're a visionary as a musician and i know that from having played with you but let's take a quick step back 1972 1973 somewhere around there you're playing with the spiders from ours you're actually in the spiders from ours one of the most legendary rock and roll bands of all time if you watch the famous concert where david's doing his last concert in quotations uh was it at the odeon in in uh in in hammersmith hammersmith odeon in london where David famously said, you know, this is my last concert. If you if you look at the footage there on the left side of the stage, there's Michael Garson playing the keyboard. So you were actually in the Spiders from Mars, which to me is just mind-blowing. And yet you stay with David Bowie. He walked away from most of the band, or I think all the band, right? And yet you survived. If anybody wants to check out, and we're going to have a, a Spotify playlist, if you go to um, WPC33.com, that's the website for this podcast, where we're going to put up all the songs that we talk about here on the, on the program. So you definitely want to check out Mike's famous solo in the Latin Sane which really ushers you into the David Bowie canon because you hadn't really played on record before that with David. And, and your avant-garde solo sort of ripped brains open and, and, and never to be put back together again. One thing I want to ask you, because it, it does get to the point of the matter in talking about my new song, Autumn, and it being an instrumental, it certainly has an influence of David's uh, Berlin period, which people famously talk about, where he kind of went for cold, icy synths. And there's definitely an influence there. He inspired me to believe that that kind of music, which of course was inspired by Can, Tangerine Dream, Krautrock bands of the time. Uh, you weren't playing with him at that time, but certainly I, I always got the feeling you guys had a friendly relationship even when you weren't playing with him. So when you heard that music coming out of the Berlin period, how avant-garde it was, how kind of in a, in a way it was very cold, what was your initial impression as the songs like Warsaw? You know, I felt partially responsible for that, because <laughs> I, made it, that. I made it safe to be pretty much avant-garde with him early on. Now, obviously, he resonated with that. and uh, But, you know, I, I was the only one in the band in all the concerts I ever did that was the loose cannon. He had everybody playing the parts, because people know those songs, and all the guitar players and drum parts were always perfect, and pretty much the same every night. Maybe a guitar solo was a little altered. Nothing like the way you do it when we work together where you're free. And I was that person that could do anything I wanted. And every time I played Life on Mars or Changes, it was different. And while Rick Waitman played a definitive version on Hunky Dory Life on Mars, I loved it. It's not who I was. And I just made it different every night. And he allowed it. Only one time <laughs> I kind of fucked with him in a rehearsal and played a crazy intro and he came in the wrong key <laughs> and he begged me, just just get me in in the right key and play the right <laughs> chord and do anything you want in the middle. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I didn't know. So in a weird kind of way, you're, you're part of that influence of him going more towards the avant-garde. But just real quick, back to the, to the question. When you first heard that music, which is so groundbreaking, and here we are 50-something years later, 45 years later, it still remains highly influential, particularly to avant-garde and alternative musicians. What was your first impression when you heard him kind of going off on that tangent? I wasn't impressed, uh, William. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because I had been submerged in Stockhausen and Schoenberg and Cecil Taylor and late John Coltrane 
and it seemed so simple and plain. I got it. I was happy he did it, and I knew it would be new and fresh and open the door for others. But for me, it was like I had experimented with stuff like that 20 years earlier. With uh, I had the original uh, tape recorders that had sound on sound in 1958 and Tascams, and I was messing around, and I would be in jam sessions at Brooklyn College where I went to school uh, in the 60s and playing with another pianist with elbows and forehands. And <laughs> so, you know, but as the years grew on, humility set in. And when I played the whole album with him on tour in the 90s, I said, I got it. It's more than the notes. It's more than the instrumental. The guy is saying something. And I got over the coldness. You know, I got over it. Yeah, I think one of the things that took me a long time to really understand as a fan and in many ways a devotee of David, because he is a true visionary in music and in all the arts, really, but particularly in music, was his ability to synergize disparate musical languages and put them together. So you can listen to a David song and he's both aping and arcing off of 1950s doo-wop into late 60s New York avant-garde. And, you know, little, throw in a little Klosnomi in there somewhere. And somehow he could make it all work where the common person, and I mean that lovingly, the common person could hear stuff that's very avant-garde. And yet these are made into hit songs. I, I think you nailed it right there because a lot of what you just said, I'm ignorant. I just love music. David Bowie, when I listen to it just as a fan, I hit it on multiple levels, not as deep as you, but you're right. It does appeal to the masses as well. I, I love things that I can't even pinpoint. So you put into words there. One day I hope to have the acknowledgement of knowing that music as well as you do. It's a good point. In, in many ways, uh, Michael and I came from completely different musical backgrounds and disciplines. And in many ways, David Bowie brought two people like us together to share a common language where we can talk, where what Mike did became rock and roll. And what rock and roll became is partly due to what Mike's vision and opening it up into polyphony and, and chord changes and sort of strangeness in quotations, that normally you would not find. Aladdin Saint is probably the greatest apotheosis of that philosophy, where on the surface you have a very good just straight-ahead rock and roll song, and then Mike comes in in the middle and plays a solo and just absolutely destroys anybody's conception of what that solo is supposed to be. For people who don't know off the top, you could give them a little taste of what that solo kind of felt like. So, you know, it's just an A chord and a G chord, and it's going like... Something like that. <laughs> I love what how you say treat. it's just an A chord and a G chord. You guys are so deep dive into being creators of music that I think it's really easy for you to kind of forget that to the average person, what you do is mind blowing. We can't do this type of stuff. That's why we're fans. That's why we listen to. So when you say it's just an A and a G, it's so much more than that. And I hope you realize that. I never can seem to realize it, Kyle, but thanks for telling me. But tell me again tomorrow because I will forget. <laughs> oh, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's, so how Michael, we, that's how we are, you know. Yes, yes, William. So, Michael, because we, we, we do share a friendship now of over 20 years, um, I want to share a little something with you, and I want to get your reaction because you truly are a person who stood in the musical weeds. You've never sort of chased success in the way that most people chase success musically. I know you as a person of high, high integrity, particularly when it comes to music, but also as a human being. So I just want to send this to you because I, I think I want to get your re reaction. So when I decided to do this album over four years ago, and it took me many years to put it together and make a sequel to Melancholy Machina, and of course you, you were on the Machina tour with us uh, famously, um, many people told me I was insane for wanting to do 33 songs. Uh, many people told me that it was a bad idea to do 33 songs, that people don't listen to that much music anymore. And yet, you know, to someone like you, that sounds like the craziest thing in the world, I would think, but I'm, I'm, I, maybe I'm preempting the question, but I want to get your feedback on stuff like that as someone who's known me this long and has taken these musical journeys with me. When you told me that four years ago, I can't tell you how excited I was about the concept. And I was supportive of it spiritually the whole time and awaiting for this period of time when I could be a, a, a fan and, and listen in and absorb it because you're also an artist that just continues to move and you don't sit in your comfort zone and you're pushing the boundaries. That's what David was. And 
you know, Mozart was that way, Beethoven was that way, Stravinsky was that way, Gershwin was that way. And I think I'd ask you to shoot me in the head if I was doing the same thing every day in a year or two from now. And, and since I've seen you, I've composed 2,000 classical pieces. No one will find them for 100 years, but who the fuck cares? It's like I have to do it. And no less, like you say, doing it instrumentally, <laughs> nobody's going to hear it. Nobody cares. And even if one out of 10 pieces are good, which would leave me 200 good ones, I'm happy. You know. What would you say to somebody um, who doesn't understand a particular musical journey? Like when you say, I'm doing all this music and I know most people won't hear it or and or care. What is the impetus in your mind behind why you must sort of speak that language? It just reminds me of being in the rehearsal room with you on the last tour with the Pumpkins. You might have forgotten this, but some asshole reporter walked in and we were chatting and we were going on stage in 10 minutes and you were pissed off at something and you said to him, see this guy here, Mike Garson, no one will ever know that he's a fucking best classical composer of the 20th century because he's playing with me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember I've that. I've told part. that story ten times, and it's totally true, and I'm totally comfortable with it. You know? Yeah, I, I guess that's interesting because I've had a pop music career. I've had success at the highest levels, and that tensile point between creativity, which oftentimes take you into, takes you into uncomfortable places in, into creation, and then um, the point of acceptance. But we, as we know, much of what is accepted in a given time oftentimes adds up to a lot of shit. Um, we can go back into any era, and that includes this era and my era included. Uh, and I'm sure I've, I've written a few clunkers too. You know, in essence, it's like, what is the most important thing? My argument is, and of course I want your feedback, is it's all important. Like the pop song is important and the deep, deep classical composition is important. I went to see a Mozart opera with my uh, three, three-year-old the other night. And it was, we were getting dirty looks from people because if she dared whispered, uh, somebody was shooting her dirty looks because God forbid anybody says anything why the Mozart uh, show is going on. But listening to, a, you know, not the most famous Mozart uh, aria, you know, a super, super high polyphony uh, musical construction, just absolutely, absolute brilliance. And I'm in, a, I'm in a hall with, you know, maybe 500 people, 400 people. It's not like, you know, 50,000 people are going to the Mozart opera, but everybody recognizes it's the, it's the highest form of, of expression. But that doesn't mean that 80,000 people in a stadium seeing a pop band makes that right either. It's like there's a point in there somewhere and I think music is so broad and so beautiful that it can support all vision, including the not so good ones. Yeah. It makes you wonder if Mozart would look back and be like, man, I came off as pretentious. Guys, I'm just trying to entertain. <laughs> well, I don't think they were worried about pretense back then. They worried about getting money from whatever king was passing out the, the ducats at the time. Uh, artists in that particular time were very, very reliant on, on the Lord's uh, basically putting out stipends in, in order for them to eat and survive. There was really no commercial form of music that wasn't through royalty. That's the education you're going to get on 33, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. As Kyle walks into brick wall after brick wall. There's one more piece of information about Mozart. I had a classical Juilliard teacher when I was 12, and he was teaching me this Mozart piece that went... So I come back the next week and I do. And the motherfucker says, you have delusions of grandeur instead of saying, oh, you're a budding composer. So I still say, fuck him. You know, I feel <laughs> I, I just can't believe the, the there's a small mindedness in the classical world and people like us who would bring pop music but with intention and quality can be the new classical music. And that's why I love that opening piece. And God knows you have a symphony in you, Billy. And I just want to see that continuing. That's our responsibility as I see it. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is classical music oftentimes falls into this kind of Hosanna thing where because somebody wrote it 400 years ago, it can't be messed with. Glenn Gould, as you know, took a lot of guff for changing the tempos and keys of famous Mozart pieces, but he brought a whole new generation of fan into classical music that would have never been interested because of the brilliance of his, his ability. I don't look at music, any music, classical on up, if that's even a fair way to put it, uh, as sacrosanct, as if it can't be messed with. And one of the greatest things I learned from somebody that you were intimately involved with in David Bowie was he was fine with the act of destruction in art. And I think he got that in many ways from The Who, which was a band he loved. 
The Pete Townsend used to call it their theory of it, which came from pop art, is auto-destruct. Andy Warhol was a big component that everything could be destroyed and rebuilt into something new. So Warhol taking a, a photo and painting over it and putting graffiti on it, that was his form. Pete Townsend smashing a guitar was a way. And David was willing to rip things apart at the seams and put them back together in a new and special way. So I think classical music does itself a disservice when it acts like these are biblical texts which can't be messed with. Um, I think someone like Bach would be horrified with the idea that every note that he played was perfect and you couldn't mess with it because he was messing with it. And they have uh, copious evidence of suggesting that when he would pick pieces up 10 years later, he would go back and re-alter a bunch of his compositions. And many times he'd re-alter them and give them a different name and perform them as if they were new pieces. So if he wasn't sacrosanct about it, why do we have to be? And Chopin, who was the perfect piano composer, said in a biography that his improvisations were better than his written pieces. We just have no MP3s or tapes or recordings oh, wow. of it. So if he said that, that changed my life when I heard that because I felt like an anomaly. No, Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and Skip 400 years later, me, we improvise. And everything I play, I try to play in the moment as how I feel so I could express the most honesty. So I was at a Bach concert with the greatest players playing, and I was doing the second half of the show, and the Bach performances were phenomenal. But I went on stage, and I improvised, and I improvised some Bach and other things, and it was the highlight of the evening. It was nothing to do with ego. I knew it. They knew it. Because now improvisation done poorly sucks, but if it's done really good, there's nothing like it. Mike, I agree with you entirely, and I want to thank you for being able to make things their own entity every time. Uh, that's a skill that a lot of people don't have. There's planning, and then there's actually doing, and you're doing it, and just congrats. And, man, what a history, David Bowie and everything else. And I just want to thank you for being part of the 33 podcast. Thank you, Kyle. I was in Portugal with William, and we were playing, and he used the word radio, and he played a guitar solo for fucking 40 minutes. And I just remember it like it happened 10 minutes ago. And I need more of that, William, when the time is right. Thank you, Michael. I love you like a brother. And uh, thank you. And talk to you soon. Thanks again, Mike. We're going to have a quick break right now. When we come back right after the break, we're going to the second single from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. We're going to be listening to 1979. Stay tuned. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 
Ah, yes, the sonorous tones of 1979 from 1995. Many people assume I wrote the song about 1979, but in 1979, I think I would have been about 12 years old. The song was actually written more so about 1984. Don't ask me why I call it 1979, other than that was the first line I wrote in the little poem that became the lyrics for the song. But before we go into the deep dive in 1979, one of my favorite all-time songs, and certainly, obviously, a lot of other people's, if the world interest in it is any indication, I'd like to introduce to you my co-hosts, Joe Galley and Kyle Davis, who, of course, you've heard on this podcast. But what you may not know is that both Joe and Kyle work with me in the National Wrestling Alliance. Joe is the host of all our programs, and Kyle does a lot of the backstage interviews and, of course, interviews the talent at the famous Power Podium. So, gentlemen, uh, Joe, give a little bit of background. You know, you come from TV news and also wrestling. Yeah, I do. I mean, I've been a broadcast journalist for over a decade at this point. Uh, you know, born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and uh, that's where I went to school. And honestly, that's where I fell in love with the Smashing Pumpkins uh, just as a fan. You know, you, when you grow up in that town, especially during that time, everybody listened to 106.7 KROQ, uh, world famous. And I, I still remember all those times and jamming out. You, do you want to hear a very personal story I've never told you before, Billy? Absolutely. That's what we're so here to do. So you brought up 1979. I'm going to bring up a year, 1987, because that was the year the Toyota Corolla I was driving at the time when I was 16 years old, when I was still in high school. And uh, you're part of one of the most intimate memories of me. And, and I can't believe we've waited this long because we've known each other for so long. And I can know Kyle is just ready to explode with laughter because this is the God's honest truth, Billy. I was with my girlfriend at the time, high school sweethearts. Uh, and as one does, you lose your virginity to your high school girlfriend in the back of your 1987 Toyota Corolla. And what song happens to be playing on 106.7 KROQ? But tonight, tonight which I hope we'll get to eventually on this podcast. So that's my... Well, now that, now that I hear the story, we're never going to get to the song, but go ahead and finish. Completely this is it. amazing this is, one, this is 100% true, but I remember it. It's burned into my brain. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's just the very start of uh, the, the relationship that I had uh, with the Smashing Pumpkins. And then, you know, I heard it all the time uh, listening to K-Rock and also just, you know, in my journeys, you know, moving on, you know, covering local news all over this country, meeting a bunch of people, and then also meeting how... You know, you get inside the Los Angeles bubble when it comes to music, and I'm sure you could talk a lot about this, where you have all your different people that are really focused in the Los Angeles area. And like, for instance, like a lot of the people growing up in L.A., they didn't have any idea who Meatloaf was because Meatloaf was such a regional sort of thing that didn't get a lot of radio play in Los Angeles. And I was thinking maybe the Pumpkins was kind of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers that sort of had that feel. But it's kind of ubiquitous. And when you talk to music fans, whether I was living in Toledo, Ohio or Allentown or San Antonio or Palm Springs or anywhere else, you run into those those Pumpkins fans because it kind of just goes anywhere and everywhere. And so that's a little bit about my backstory. And of course, you know, my love for professional wrestling that brought us together. And now we have this amazing podcast and I get to hang out with my buddy Kyle. Who did not lose his virginity to one of your songs, Whoa. I'm sorry to say, but it's I'm, good I'm, to I'm know. I'm very pleased, honestly, and uh, if Joe's not on the next episode and you are, you'll know why. Uh, well, uh, what can I say? Bullet with Butterfly Wings definitely was one that I would have liked to have fun with. Uh, but no, 1979, it hit right when I was a freshman in high school. And and the truth of the matter is, is that I, I really had a feeling that this was kind of like a nostalgic adolescence type of song, which I could be wrong. You're an artist. I'm sure you constantly have people coming up to you and say, hey, I love this song. This is what it means. Right. And you kind of begrudgingly be like, no. So I really don't have any fun, emotional connection other than the fact that I love this. And it reminds me of one of the best times of my life, which is when you're young, you have zero responsibility. The world is your oyster tomorrow's just another day. You don't have any stress. Life's great. That's what I think of when I think of 1979 is that this is a fleeting moment. And the older I get, this is going to go away. Should I just have a moment and appreciate the dawn coming up in the middle of the night after hanging out with my friends? What's beautiful about what you just said is it's so accurate to what the song's actually about. Yes. And you didn't know that. So that's beautiful. No, and that's why I say it's mostly about 1984. Um, I've said it a few times in interviews, but I'd like to go a little uh, past what I've said in the interviews because that's what we're here to do. In, in 1984, um, my home life was falling apart. Thankfully, the violence in my home had stopped, which had gone on for over a decade. Uh, but I had a ton of responsibility. I was still looking after my, uh, my two younger brothers. I had a job. I was a pizza delivery guy. I'd inherited the old family car, which was falling apart and had ball tires. And certainly was a dangerous thing to drive. And, and the enduring memory, and, and I swear to God, across my heart and hope to die, 
I remember sitting at a specific stoplight. I can take you back to the corner like it was yesterday. It was raining, as it often does in Chicago. It was a cold, dreary day. I was sort of miserable in the car, and I was stuck at the spotlight. And there was a particular feeling that I got, which was like in the rearview mirror of my life was youth, childhood, and it was about to go away. And in front of me was everything that I hoped to become, everything that I was uh, hoping to, 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 to do in life. And for some reason, in this exact particular moment at this particular stoplights with the wipers going off in front of me, that's the feeling that I wrote the song of. So I wrote a poem that starts off, and the first line of the poem is Shakedown 1979. Uh, and when I first sang the song against the music that I'd written, and uh, quite famously, I came up with the riff for 1979, watching Regis and Kathy Lee in the morning, which is my morning exercise, and which uh, uh, famously got me on Regis and Kathy Lee, not once, but twice, uh, where uh, Kathy Lee Gifford, who was then married to the NFL legend Frank Gifford, openly hit on me on, on national television. I believe she was sort of hitting on me, and I said something about having no hair, and she said something about don't worry where the grass doesn't grow or something. You have to watch the clip. That's got to be on YouTube <laughs> oh, somewhere. Trust me, it was like 7 a.m., and I'm like, oh, my God, is she hitting on me? This is incredible. And, you know, good-looking woman, so I had no problem with it. But, um, yeah, so I wrote the song with this this notion in mind of of what it's like to be at that precipice between youth and adulthood. Not that I've ever become an adult, but that was the sensation at the time. And I, I wrote these lyrics all out in sort of one go. I have the typed piece of paper somewhere in my archives, and there's no corrections. So what you actually hear me sing on the song is the poem that I wrote with no alterations, which is very, very unusual. And then when I went to sing the first line, uh, Shakedown 1979, it didn't ring. And so that's what started the song was Shakedown 1979. You know what I mean? Because that was the only way to sing because the other way sounded really weird to me. Got to change the cadence. Right. But it was, but you know, I remember having that moment where you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is kind of weird. Are people going to like it? You know what I mean? And now, of course, it's become like a signature part of the song. It's like one of those things where every time you sing the line, people cheer because it's like, ah, there it is. There's that line. The other part of the story that's really worth uh, telling is we had worked on approximately 50 songs for the Melancholy album, an album which was worked on for over eight months. And Flood, the producer, the co-producer, along with Alan Mulder, but Flood, uh, who was my friend at the time as well, uh, came to me and said, look, uh, we're running out of time. If we're going to record this song, uh, we have to do it tomorrow. We tried to record it many, many times with the band. And every time we tried to record it as a unit, it always sounded like really, really bad Rolling Stones. And I mean, like the worst version of the Rolling Stones, which to somebody might sound like a good idea. But the Smashing Pumpkins doing a really, really bad version of the Rolling Stones is not a good idea. So um, I went home that night and I was determined because everyone that heard the song, if I just played it acoustic, would say, oh, that's a great song. Oh, that's a great song. So there was a sort of a pressure uh, to get the song right. And up to that point, we hadn't. So that night I went home and I did a demo of the song. Uh, I was living close to Wrigley Field and I recorded the song in a particular way with a particular tempo. I recorded the song live, which I believe is on the Melancholy box set if you get a chance to listen to it. And I took it in the next day and I played it for Flood. And he said, right, let's do it. And, and the version that you hear, the final version, there's no other additions, was all done in that very last day of recording. And uh, it's incredible because when we... Handed in the record, people identified that 1979 would most likely be a single, but nobody thought it would be the second single because it was so different than what we were known for. And Bullet Butterfly Wings was the first song, was a very big song, very big MTV song. And then the record label came and said, we've got to go with 1979 second. And I was like, no, no, we can't. That's too weird. It's too different. And they were like, we're telling you it's going to be a big hit song. And I kept thinking, no, this is the worst thing we can do because it's so different. We just established that we're a big alternative rock band. We're coming off, of course, the years of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and all these bands getting super, super huge and the pressure's on us to sort of take it to the next level. So in my mind, 1979 was not that song and they literally had to beg me to give permission to put the song out. And we made the video uh, in, in Southern California, uh, actually in a house. Uh, there's the scenes in the house. Uh, it was made in a house that had been damaged by one of the big earthquakes, maybe in the 90s. Uh, and had literally a crack in the foundation in the middle of the floor. So it was unsafe for living, but we made the video in there. And uh, famously, they lost the tapes, and everybody wants to look at that story up. So we had to do it twice in the exact same house with the exact same people wearing the exact same clothes. You want to talk about a surreal experience. So everything about 79 as a song um, has like almost like a weird, beautiful, no matter which way we went with it, we always seem to land on our feet with it. And the fact that people still want to hear the song, the fact that we still play it live in concert all these years later, uh, that it gets licensed for various TV shows and commercials, and even people rip the song off, and I have to threaten to sue them because they try to rip off the distinctive signature of 1979. And now, there's only one little funny other story that's worth telling in there. 
Peter Hook, who is the great bass player of Joy Division and New Order, somebody I've known since 1990, and whose son, Jack, plays uh, in the current incarnation of the Smashing Pumpkins, has played with us for years, Jack Bates. When uh, Peter Hook first heard that song, he sent a message uh, through a friend of mine, a mutual friend. The friend said, hey, Hookie heard that song. I was like, yeah, really? What do you think? He goes, he wants royalties because you're ripping them off so hard. And so I will, I will tip my cap to, to uh, New Order because there's definitely a little bit of Joy Division and uh, New Order in that song. But it's one of those songs where I, if I tried to write it again, I don't think I could. It was a moment in time, and it's not only a moment in time emotionally in talking about this precipice between youth and adulthood, uh, whatever that means, but also it was sort of this moment in time in my life where I was under enormous pressure and somehow sitting there on a couch one morning watching Regis and Kathy Lee, I came up with a riff that inspired the lyric that made the song. Well, I love the fact that you brought up the fact that it's such a different sound than your first single had. And I think that's really something that prepared all of your fans going forward is that you can hit it hard, you can hit it soft, you can hit it in the heart, you can just hit it on any note. So uh, that's a great story. And thank you for sharing with that. Well, I have to think that it's so interesting just to see where the inspiration comes from. And you can hear about it from all these different artists, but to see where you were in that moment and to be able to create something that's really not only was a was a huge hit at the time but it's stood the test of time and it's a song that still gets those spins on the radio that people still you know might even do a tiktok dance for it's kind of it has that it has that feel to it you know there's so many songs that came out that you can be like all right that's definitely a song you know from the 90s or something like but this one has sort of that feel to where it's almost it, it eternal if that might be the right word timeless is the word i was looking for Time, timeless is the word that we like in the band. I do think when the band hits that timeless gear, I wish we could hit it all the time, but it is really a moment in time in the sense that you have to be in the right space. It might even have something to do with what you ate the day, the day before. One other thing I would like to point out, and I think it's a good way to end this very first episode, and if you've made it this far, we thank you so much for listening. It's very important uh, that uh, your support be recognized because you know, talking about music is certainly not as fun as playing it, but we want you to understand that what we're doing here is letting you behind the sort of wizard's curtain really for the first time because the album Autumn is a really unique opportunity, not only as a musical experience that we one day hope to stage, you know, in front of a live audience, all three, uh, two hours and 20 minutes of it, three acts of it and 33 songs of it. But also I think that sharing what this uh, record is about um, sort of as you go along and you, you come in experience with us, a unique opportunity to sort of understand why we do what we do. And let me just put it this way, and this is what I'm after as I'm rambling around here in the points. When we do a song in the band like 1979 and we're able to sort of capture that zeitgeist moment, it is no less important or more important to the Smashing Pumpkins than a song that you've never even heard of that we've done that is forgotten on an album from 17 years ago. That may sound like a strange thing to say, but let me tell you, to the Smashing Pumpkins, we treat every song equally as important. So when we put a, an album out like Autumn, and we put a song out like the song Autumn, the, the theme song, we're not quite sure whether that might be a song that 20 years from now you want to talk to me about on a podcast or will be consigned to the dustbin of history. But what's important to us is that we do it. And that's the one thing I don't like, uh, let's call it in the negative frame of musical culture, is people trying to encourage you people trying to encourage you of what not to do. They should be encouraging you to take chances because at least for the Smashing Pumpkins, those chances have paid off. If we were afraid, we never would have done a song like 1979. It wouldn't exist. You would never have heard it. You never would have heard the demo. It would not exist. And when I can tell you all the people that have come up to you through the years, whether they were influenced, whether they started a band because of the song, whether they lost their virginity to car, and I have had those... Uh, those people, though, Joe, although that was not your song to lose your virginity to. There's no sliding scale of importance in the in the Smashing Pumpkins world as far as it, it, it has to do with music. For us, all music is important. Statements are important. We recognize that some songs are better than others, but that's not really what it's about for us. What it's about is taking those chances and rolling these things out. And in this case of the 33 album, 33 song album Autumn, that's what we're doing. We're putting it all out on the table yet one more time, and we're saying this is who we are. Love it, don't love it. But we're here to play. Well, I'm ready to take that journey, as I'm sure all the listeners are. 33 episodes, 33 songs, 33 flashbacks. Going to listen to that every Tuesday. Folks, tune in, subscribe, be iHeartRadio, 33. Find it wherever you can get your podcasts. Joe? Well, the only thing I got to say is there's nothing better than seeing the Smashing Pumpkins live in concert. Ticket information for their newest tour just starting in just a few days with the good old friends at Jane's Addiction, just head to smashingpumpkins.com for the latest information on that. 
Make sure to follow the Smashing Pumpkins on social media at Smashing Pumpkins. Follow Billy at Billy on Twitter. And once again, like Kyle said, thanks for joining us on the very first step on this long journey through music and the new album, Autumn. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Our next episode of 33 is available right now on the iHeartRadio app, iTunes, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in right now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.